This is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, brought to you by UBS. Seven years ago, Katie Hassel had an epiphany at a major London art fair, where she found women artists to be invisible. Hessel created an Instagram account called The Great Women Artists, with the mission of promoting female artists to counterbalance centuries of structural sexism. That account has proved very popular and has led to her exploring the topic in a column for The Guardian, on BBC TV specials, in exhibitions she has curated, and now for her new book called The Story of Art Without Men. In the book, Hessel traces how women have been written out of art history, forbidden from studios, overshadowed by male peers, and undervalued by the market. The book is also an invaluable resource, citing hundreds of female artists that we can explore across several centuries. Our conversation starts in the Renaissance era and ends with the current market hype around young women painters. Hessel even offers up evidence that a woman might have been the real creator of Fountain, the famous urinal sculpture that redefined art history, rather than Marcel Duchamp. I hope you enjoy this vibrant conversation, so please be sure to review and favorite intersections wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Katie Hessel, welcome to Intersections. Because this is a podcast, it's always good to give our listeners a sense of place. Tell us where you are, what's around you. Hello, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. So I'm currently in my flat in North London and I live surrounded by art. So for those, obviously the listeners can't see, but behind me is a giant portrait of myself <laughs> by Chantal Joffe. And actually she's a really good friend of mine and it was a gift. And then next to her is a, some prints by Sarah Ball, who I love, who's a friend of mine. And then also next to that is a fantastic mini portrait of Alice Neal by Chantal Joffe as well. And Alice Neal is a hero of both me and Chantal. And that's just some of it, really. But I love it. I love living around art. And downstairs in my bedroom, I live with a painting by Samaya Critchlow and Antonia Showering. And so it's great. <laughs> Excellent. So you're in London and you're a lifelong Londoner. I'm curious how you came to be someone for whom art is not only a profession, but also something that's so important that it's actually woven all around your life, even at home. Yeah, I didn't grow up in an artistic family at all, but I did grow up in London. I was born in the 90s. And at that time, art in London was so exciting. The Tate Modern was just installed. Like, could you imagine being a kid and suddenly going to this gallery, the National Gallery, and thinking things might have been a bit stuffy or something, and then entering this turbine hall and just thinking, oh my God, this can just expand every single limit of what you thought art could be. It was this time when the London Eye was built, the Millennium Dome, which sort of feel like quite like sort of archaic landmarks now, but they were really exciting. My parents always really encouraged museum visits. We didn't know much about art or anything. But I think that was kind of better because you didn't have to enter a museum without any sort of preconceived notions of what you should and should, should not know. So it was totally up to you as a kid just to be like, okay, cool. And it was amazing. I was really lucky to go to school in central London and to be able to sort of take the tube by myself. And what you do as a, a teenager on a Saturday with your mates is you go to the Royal Academy and National Gallery and Tate Britain. What's amazing about London as well is that so many of the museums are Free. It wasn't just art early on. I loved fashion, architecture, music and everything. I, I actually grew up very musical. I played lots of instruments. But I think it was just that culture that London could allow for you. And I think it's that access. As a kid, if you have that kind of access, you can believe that you can have access to anything in a way. It's really remarkable, I think, growing up in a city. I feel very lucky. <laughs> Katie, you've mentioned in several interviews this epiphany you had after going to an art fair in October of 2015 and not seeing women artists represented. 
I'm curious about that experience. Yeah, I was 21 at the time. I just finished my undergraduate studies at UCL doing art history. And I'd also just been studying the work of Alice Neal, who I mentioned earlier, who is this fantastic portrait painter in America who lived from 1900 to 1984 and who didn't get the recognition she deserved until she was in her 70s. And it's actually only really taken until the last couple of years for her recognition to also skyrocket. We saw that with the Metropolitan Museum of Art exhibition last summer in New York that had queues going around the block, which is totally what she deserves. But yeah, I was 21 at the time. I was in an art fair. I'm not going to name the art fair because I think they've done amazing things since, but it's an art fair in London, a very major one that specializes in historic artworks. And I was shocked, honestly. It was like this epiphany where I was like, this is just... But also I think I had it with myself. I was suddenly like... How have I never even thought about the disparity between gender imbalances in the art world? And how had I lived this lie in a way? How had I only seen half the picture, as the gorilla girls often say? For me, it was just a no-brainer that I had to do something about it. I was 21 at the time. And I think when you are 21, obviously you have no platform or any leg to stand on or whatever. And so I started an Instagram account because it was a way to interweave art also within people's daily feeds. I think a part of my project is also about accessibility and everything and getting people who might not be interested in art to be interested in art. What's amazing is that since 2015, when I go back to the said art fair or any art fair, that they've really actually made a conscious effort, not because of me at all, but because there has been this incredible like-mindedness since, I think, in the last seven years, where this overthrowing of the canon, and it's really vital in every way, whether it be class, gender, sexuality, race, everything. And I think we've moved forward massively. So that Instagram account, which is called The Great Women Artists, then led to a podcast, which then led to a book, which I had the pleasure of reading over the weekend. And what's striking about it is that you draw in great detail the ways in which women were written out of art history, forbidden from working in certain ways, marginalized, overshadowed, undervalued, in more or less that order. So I'm going to follow the historical framework of your book and take us back to the Renaissance and to the period of the old masters. So what's interesting in reading your book is everyone is conscious now of Artemisia Gentileschi because she is cited as a painter who was written out of art history. But there are also painters you cite, such as Sofonispa and Gusola, who was a Renaissance painter, and the Dutch master Judith Leister, who both were very successful in their time, both financially and critically. They were well-respected by their peers. They were flooded with commissions. And yet, when E.H. Gombrich writes his story of art, there are no women in that book. And even women such as the two I just cited are pretty unknown. So what happened there? Because it wasn't that they weren't successful during their lifetimes. It's just that they vanished afterwards. I know, it's incredible, right? Artemisia Gentileschi especially was this international celebrity and she travelled around Europe as a woman in the 17th century. The fact that she got these commissions that were on these towering scales and actually was even able to paint the nude figure because she probably looked at herself or she had models she had access to. It's just remarkable the sort of barriers that these women had to overcome and the fact that also so much of their work survives despite the odds being so against them. But I think in terms of being and out of art history, you cite Gombrich's Story of Art, which is a kind of tongue-in-cheek title that my book very much represents. My book is called The Story of Art Without Men. 
<laughs> which I think can't help but have a reaction to. The thing is, is that it's the gatekeepers who has always prized certain sections of society over another. And the fact that dealers, museum curators, the list is endless. The fact that these people have, I don't understand, have they literally written women out of art history and in conscious decision? Or were they just purely ignorant and lazy? It totally baffles me. And it took me until I was 21 to be like, hang on, something needs to be done about this. But I don't understand how historians and curators or whoever could have gone their whole life without knowing this or recognizing this. Is that a strange thing to say? And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses, and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. You mentioned the remarkable fact that Gentileschi was allowed to paint the nude. And one of the things you talk about at several points in the book is that there were centuries in which women were not allowed to paint nudes, were not allowed to work in the figure drawing studios. And that at a certain point when they were allowed to, it was only until 5 p.m. What was the logic of any behind this ban? What were people afraid of? First of all, women had to be wealthy even just to get access to any sort of tutoring. Whereas a man, if they were not from a wealthy background, they could do an apprenticeship and they could work their way up. And I guess it was just not deemed proper for a woman to do that. Women were often constricted to the home. They still are in so many cultures today in 2022. The fact that they were restricted to still life and domestic scenes and these paintings that they could do from the home. But what they did, they monopolized these genres in a way. They said, okay, well, if I'm only going to be able to have access to still life painting, then I'm going to interweave self-portrait into that. Sophonis Bangosoli mentioned in 1555, okay, well, if I only have my teacher to paint, then I'm going to switch up gender conventions completely. There's this amazing portrait, which first appears to be Sophonisba's teacher, Bernardino Campi, painting her. But what we actually see is Sophonisba dictating his appearance, dictating her appearance. And what she gets him to do is she gets him to be painting this embellishment of the jacket, which is something normally assigned to an apprentice. So already in 1555, this woman understood that these gender conventions were completely absurd. And so the fact that we have these records of these women interweaving self-portraits in their still life, interweaving, like you mentioned, Judith Leister, a painting on an easel in a portrait. They had these amazing things where they got round it all. It's just remarkable. And as a result, they're so experimental. And the fact that the odds were against them is remarkable. For me, I think the real blockbuster, the bomb in this book, involves the Armut piece, the urinal, which is commonly attributed to Marcel Duchamp, in which many people, including myself, consider to be one of the truly landmark pieces of the 20th century in the sense that in the same way that Damoiselle d'Avignon is a different way of painting what we see, the urinal completely defines what can be art. And 
what you point to in the book, and I'm sure this is going to be hotly contested in some quarters, is the idea that, in fact, Marcel Duchamp may not have made this work, but rather that it would have been by one of his contemporaries, who was named Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. Tell me about that, because that, I think, is going to be the thing that's going to get a lot of pushback. So I also have to say that I do not say that it is definitely by her. I also offer up an opinion that it could potentially be... Absolutely. No, the the wording is is very precise. (laughs) Just tell me the facts, you know, and then obviously our listeners can interpret them as your readers can interpret them. Because neither you nor I, I guess, are going to take a definitive position on this today. Definitely not. So Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven was this remarkable artist who was working alongside the likes of Duchamp and she would attend these salons where she would have these poetry recitals that she called ready-made poems. And she was totally inventive, in a way at the forefront of performance art and body art. And this idea of what was a ready-made poem, she'd get slogans from advertisement and sort of transfer them into her poetry. She would walk down the streets with just a blanket, tin tomato cans tied together with strings around her chest, hats adorned with gilded carrots and other vegetables and everything. And she saw these items that she saw as wearable art in a way. And she totally defied gender conventions completely. She used to pick up junk off the street and she called them her junk sculptures. In a way, it reminds me of Louise Nevelson or something in the 50s who transformed junk sculptures into her fantastic installations. The story goes that she produced this piece titled Enduring Ornament, which was an old metal ring, which she declared as an artwork a year before Duchamp's bottle rack. Again, bottle rack, when you go to MoMA, it being that spotlighting section in MoMA where you're just like, this is the turning point of art history. And it's about 1913. So, you know, really pivotal. And then in 1917, she had a collaboration with Morton Livington's Schamburg, where she created God, uh, which was this sort of plumbing trap, which was again, wrongfully attributed just to him. And that museum in America has actually reattributed to both of them. And then in 1917, the story goes that a mysterious woman entered this urinal into this very famous organization called the Society of Independent Artists. Duchamp had actually penned a letter, we have records, saying to his sister, one of my female friends under a masculine pseudonym, Richard Mutt, sent a porcelain urinal as a sculpture. So do we think that it is by Duchamp or do we think it is by Baroness Elsa von Freytag Lorigenhoven? The evidence that I give and that is written about in books and texts and everything is that Again, Alfred Stieglitz, who photographed the work, said that it was a woman who entered this work into it. And the fact that also the details on the urinal are hazy. He claimed that the urinal was from J.L. Mott Ironworks when they were said that they had no record of the project. And who even is Armut? I think he was a man hailing from Philadelphia, which is where Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven lived. And so I very much just offer this evidence. I don't say whether or not it was her because I don't know. I'm not clear on that. What I do offer up evidence of is the fact that she was making these junk sculptures before or alongside him and the fact that she was never credited. Again, coming back to this idea of Camille Caldell or all these people, it's the fact that she was also there. She was there at the forefront of performance art, the forefront of the avant-garde, but no one has written her into our history. And as a result, she died penniless, whereas Marcel Duchamp has historically gone on to be this incredible person. I've met famous Marcel Duchamp scholars who will literally tear my brains out for saying this on a podcast. And I know that, but I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying there is a possibility. And I think we have to acknowledge those who are working alongside who are just as pioneering. Well, at the very least, the letter casts a lot of doubt, because why would he write that to one of his family members? 
And secondly, what's super clear is that she didn't get her due as someone who was working in this way in parallel yep. to him before it changed the course of art history. Throughout this book, what I'm trying to do is also, it's very much a linear history. It's divided into five parts. And each title is Dada on the ready-made, surrealism, abstract expressionism, the Renaissance, Harlem Renaissance, everything. And what I'm trying to do is turn upside down what we've known as art history and what I was taught. So yes, of course, people like Dali and Roland Penrose, etc., or Magritte, they were all at the forefront of surrealism. But it's the fact that they were other artists who were also there making just, I think, if not more sometimes, experimental work. So it's about turning art history on its head and saying, actually, who else was in this picture at this time? There are multiple cases in art history that you cite where, for example, you have Dora Maar, who was portrayed by Picasso multiple times, or Lee Miller, who went on to be a great photographer, but was also a muse for Man Ray. And I think on the one hand, being the muse of a male artist brought these women into contact with people they might not have been in contact with otherwise. But I think it also put them in a very specific position within the art world. And I'm curious to what extent you think this position of the artist who's also the muse for a male artist is problematic. I'm just curious if that's something that you've mused about. <laughs> No, I think you make a really good point because in a way, how would they have access to these artists or resources or communities otherwise? And I think it really is thanks to the male artists a lot of the time, like in the surrealist movement that you mentioned, a lot of them were in relationships with them. And I do mention people like Degas and Toulouse-Lautrec because I think it's important to, when mentioning someone like Susan Valadon, who also started out as the artist model and who actually then worked her way up, even though she was born into poverty, because she was an artist model, she was able to get access to what life was like as an artist, access to materials, access to drawing classes from Degas. And actually, it was her backdoor insight into an artistic education. So it is totally thanks to the male artist that she became an artist. But I think playing devil's advocate here as well a bit, because I think that although it was advantageous, it was also disadvantageous in terms of how it's been written into art history. And I think the fact that so many of these women have just always almost lazily been seen as muses or marvels or something when actually they were photographers, real experimental photographers or anything in their own right. And I don't think I even mentioned Picasso in the Dora Maar section, which some people have been outraged about. But I do that because in a way, I don't even focus on the work that she's making after Picasso. I think when you look at Dora Maar's early career, she was making these photo montages, these photo collages, these photographs that were so new and experimental and just being totally pioneering with this incredible surrealist eye. And actually with those works, she wasn't even involved with him at the time. So I didn't think it was necessary to include him. Also, how often has she been cited in a Picasso exhibition, for example? One of the ironic phenomena that you point out in your book is the extent to which avant-garde artist movements were often just as sexist as the canon, as the society that they were trying to overthrow. Surrealism, for example, but also Bauhaus. Bauhaus, for all of its efforts to create a new society, was also a movement within which pretty quickly women were exiled from the painting studio to the fabric workshops. In the book, you make the argument that prior to the 1930s, during the WPA period, America was a much more egalitarian place for women artists. And then is when you get into, for example, the history of abstract expressionism in the States, you look at a figure like Lee Krasner. So Hans Hoffman once wrote about Lee Krasner that you would never know these paintings are by a woman. When Krasner and Pollock move out to East Hampton and set up their life there, 
he paints in the barn, this giant painting studio, and she's painting in the bedroom. It's only once he dies and she gets to paint in the barn that her work takes a giant new turn. And Krasner seems like a really good example of what was going on in this period of art history that you're looking at. Krasner sums up the liberal, independent woman. I've got this fantastic quote by her where she says, I was a woman, Jewish, a widow, and a damn good painter, thank you, and a little too independent. And actually, in this book, I also go into biographical detail of certain artists because I think it's really important to show this formidableness of these artists. Lee Krasner was born to immigrant parents. She was brought up in this very strict, conservative Jewish household where they only spoke Russian and Yiddish. She would travel an hour from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And she would be so determined to get that artistic education. And she just worked and worked and worked. And yes, she then went to go study with Hans Hoffman. And he said, your work is so good that you wouldn't even know that it's done by a woman. In the 1940s and 50s, she works with these works that she calls the little images because she is reduced to the spare bedroom in their house in East Hampton. And then after Pollock dies, she gets to actually take over the barn. And as a result, she has access to these paints. She has access to this studio because of the death of Pollock in a way. Like she said to Cindy Nemzer, she broke the ground. She was a working class artist, working class born artist. And that also didn't happen a lot. Yeah, it took her a little longer because the institutions didn't recognize her in the correct way. But when I go to the Whitney and I see one of these paintings in front of me that is pink and just incredible and just fleshy and brilliant and buzzing and energizing, you can't help but realize that she was one of the greatest painters of the 20th century, which is only being recognized now. When we look at the 20th century, what was the influence of gallerists like Betty Parsons or Liana Sonnabend or Virginia Dwan in terms of promoting or not promoting female artists? It's a subject I would love to know more about. I think someone could write a fantastic book on gallerists, actually how they have shaped tastes in art and styles, because also they have been instrumental. Who also gets to put on these exhibitions? It's gallerists. That's also still today and something I was actually really thinking about with my most contemporary chapter. The fact that a lot of these artists have really been championed by gallerists, which has allowed them museum exhibitions, high market prices, which is just going to drive up their ability to enter the mainstream consciousness of art lovers, but also people alike. Gallerists is such a fascinating subject that I would love someone to write the story of art gallerists, potentially without men or with men, but how these people have actually been tastemakers. Maybe that's your next book. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. What we see, what dictates the market and what dictates trends are what galleries do put on in their exhibitions. I'm curating an exhibition at Victoria Miro for this book, but I've also curated exhibitions only this summer at Kasman Gallery and Stephen Friedman Gallery. And these are all commercial galleries. And the fact that individuals can give, or a certain group of people can give people these spaces, as opposed to a museum where it does take much longer to put on museum exhibitions, you can curate shows that really speak to the time now, which I think is an amazing thing with private galleries. We've talked a lot about history, and I want the last section of this podcast to focus on where we are now. It was interesting, a couple of years ago, the Baltimore Museum of Art announced that it would only acquire works by women, and I think they acquired 33 pieces by women in one year. And around the same time, the London gallery, Richard Saltoon, announced that for one year, he would only do shows featuring women. How do you see these kinds of developments? Is it progress? How do you see this type of approach? Well, I actually think something like 
Baltimore Museum of Art collecting solely women artists in 2020 is 100% progress. And actually, I think the best form of progress, because I think we've seen so many amazing shows, like survey shows in the last few years, that have been instrumental to the development of this book. Something like Black Radical Women at the Brooklyn Museum, 1965 to 1985. We've seen Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, which started and Tate Modern and toured around the US, curated by Zoe Whitley and Mark Godfrey. These survey shows are incredible. Soul of a Nation was one of those shows for me that was so formative and gave me this totally other education into what post-war art was like in America. We didn't have that education in British museums. And these shows are amazing, but they're also impermanent. We've seen in recent years major exhibitions of Sophie Tabber Arp, Dora Maar, Ruth Asawa, which is on right now at Modern Art Oxford. But it's about these museums preserving this legacy and actually saying in 50 years time, we're going to get a Ruth Asawa work because we want in 50 years time for someone else to see that work. And actually, we're going to look after it and preserve it. I talk about this idea of trends. It's quite funny even reading some of the reviews of this book because people are like, oh my God, she's at the vanguard of fashion. And it's like, well, I sort of disagree. I think this is a subject that should have always been addressed. And I think it's ridiculous that people are still calling it a trend because I also think that people have been working hard for decades, for centuries. I'm standing on the shoulders of so many scholars and curators and everything. But I do think it's progress when people are like, we're going to have this inside our museum forever. And that's going to change things because also in the UK, permanent displays are free. Tate are the only institution in the UK that have a Lee Krasner. And if I had grown up seeing something like the eye is the first circle from 1960 or something, which is this sprawling work in the middle of Tate Modern, that would have shifted my perspective of what abstract expressionism could be. So it's about getting those key works into museums, in front of people, in front of kids. Because I think when you learn about art when you're young, then that's when your eyes are open. It's the fact that it took me till I was 21 and I went to an art fair to do my own research because I wasn't seeing it in museums. I wasn't seeing it in art fairs. That's, I think, where we've got to change. And I think it's very exciting that museums are doing that. I'm curious if there are any women who've said no to being in the shows you're curating because they were focused on women. Are there women who say, I don't want to be thought of as a woman artist. If you put me in a show of women artists, then I'm kind of limiting myself because I know people who think that way. Yeah, so I'm obviously not going to name names, but there was an artist who said no to putting a picture in this book because they didn't see themselves as a woman artist. And of course, I have to respect that. And I also say in the book that I think that a lot of the historic artists would (laughs) really not be happy with me putting them in this canon. But at the same time, I think it is necessary for us to really address the gender imbalance in society. Yeah, interestingly, it's less contemporary artists, it's more artist estates that have objective because of the way that the artists spoke about this in their lifetime. But I think you always got to respect what the artist says, and that's fine by me. I think that the most important job I can do is to be sensitive to the artists who are alive or not anymore. So looking towards the future, there's this strong focus on female contemporary artists right now. There's the rediscovery of artists like Carmen Herrera and Etel Adnan very late in their careers. There's the historical work being done for the artists who are no longer with us. Do you think 50 years from now, someone will write another book like yours? Or do you think we've achieved a new position for women artists in the art world? I think there is still so much work to be done. 
I am discovering so many more every single day. And it's so exciting, the conversations I'm having with curators or friends or anyone, and just constantly discovering and discovering. And I think that hopefully in 50 years, the fact that since I've been doing my Instagram and everything, seven years, I think that has, in that time, the sort of like-mindedness of people to really go out there and discover these artists for themselves, really, that is going to shift everything. I hope a book like this is not necessary in 50 years. I hope that we can have equality. But I also think that there is a long way to go until that happens. The fact that the market, when we think about the monetary value that we place on society, when we look at something like the gender pay gap, the disparity is huge. And I think the fact that the market is shifting is amazing. What I don't want to happen, though, is for this to be a flash in the pan. I want these markets to sustain and to be built. And I think that is the most important thing. And I also want the right people writing about these works and the right people buying these works and preserving these works. I think it's great that these artists are being recognized like this. But what I want to happen is for these stories to be sustained. You've talked several times about Instagram and what it does. And I'm curious sort of how you see its impact on the art world. Instagram, I think, has been instrumental in uplifting the voices of people in the art world or artists. I think there's definitely a correlation between artists who have historically been overlooked and the rise of these democratic platforms that people can use to spotlight these artists. What Instagram allows for is for anyone to have a platform. And I think if you do it well and you do it consistently and persistently, that you can actually really make a change and you can connect with people. The fact that you can also have access to artists, like I DM artists the whole time and it's incredible. Even just having the access to them is remarkable and having access to who they are and asking them their thoughts about everything. I've been working with an amazing artist called Anne Rothenstein, who's about to have an exhibition at Stephen Friedman Gallery. She is not formally trained. We had this conversation about prizes or winning all these things, but it's like, it's not about that. It's about the work and it's about how it makes you feel. And if it's strong work, it will endure and it will work. And I think that's what Instagram is amazing for. It's about breaking down those hierarchies, breaking down those institutionalized establishment factors that have historically perhaps been given to men. But now, because of the democratization of Instagram, women are able or anyone is able to put their artwork out there. And I think amazing things have happened because of it. I run a residency every year and all the artists who I've had on the residency, I've seen their work through Instagram, which is crazy. There's been a lot of rediscovery of artists, and there's been obviously a real seeking out of female artists, both contemporary and historical. Who are the women artists who you feel still haven't gotten the recognition that they deserve? What's your top five, top 10 list of people who you think are still due for a lot more recognition? Oh my God, there are so many. There's an amazing artist called Atsuko Tanaka in the Gutai movement, who I include. I would love to learn more about Gutai, and I'd love to learn more about her. And I think when people see this amazing work that I've included called Electric Dress from 1956, it's her draped in these electric lamps and just the idea of experimental performance art in the 1950s in Japan. Like, I want to know more. I think people like Hannah Reigan, who was an artist working in textiles, who made these fiercely political textiles. I'd love to know more about her. Judith Scott, who was an artist born with Down syndrome, who I know had the exhibition at Brooklyn Museum, but I'd love to see more of her in the UK. Charlotte Solomon, who made this work called Life or Theatre, which was just remarkable while she was on the run from the Nazis, was amazing. Marisol, I think, is someone who deserves so much more recognition, this amazing pop artist who worked with these wooden sculptures with these blank face boxes in facial features and everything. I think there is so much more to be done. Yeah. 
Alma Thomas, we needed a big exhibition of hers in the UK. Axel, one of the most incredible pop artists. I think there's so much. Great. Thank you for that list. We'll put all of the names into the show notes for people who are listening and want to do more research. So now our last two questions. What's the first artwork that you remember seeing, Katie? I'm going to say Louise Bourgeois' Maman at the Turbine Hall. Bring it back full circle to my first experiences with art. I remember seeing the spider at Tate Modern and just being completely overwhelmed by what it was. I think it was also it being in the space and then a couple of years later seeing Anish Kapoor's work again in the Turbine Hall. These colossal artworks just made me... I still have the memory imprinted in my mind of what it was like to be a six and eight-year-old in front of these works. And I think it just blew my mind in a way and made me want to know more and know more about what these works were and why they were making me feel overwhelmed and why someone would make something on such a colossal scale. These visceral works that you can't help but react to. And what was the most recent artwork you saw that moved you? So I have curated an exhibition at Victoria Miro called The Story of Art Is It Still Being Written. That exhibition is full of just the most phenomenal works by Wageshi Mutu, Enderjek Akhenani Crosby, Khadija Say, Zaneli Maholi, Samaya Critchlow, Florian Knovich, Tracy Emin. But I was really moved by Chantal Joffe's painting called Prom from 2022. It's this giant work. I think it's about nearly three meters tall. So really on the scale of old masters. It's of her daughter, Ez, as she's going to prom. It's a really simple image. It's just her in a red dress, but it's as though she's on the threshold between adolescence and adulthood. This idea that she's now on her own and she's out there into the wild. And I love images of, I guess, people like maybe in childhood or adolescence or something, because there is this idea of hope and something in front of them, an unknowingness, perhaps. I love the way that an artist can capture that. What a wonderful place to end this podcast. Thank you so much, Katie, for your time. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.